0: Hi everyone it is Michael Bird here and I am very happy to say I'm interviewing three fantastic people about evangelicals and politics in America. Now the people I'm interviewing are Patrick Triner, who is Professor of New Testament at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World. Uh, I'm also interviewing Caitlin Schess who's a writer, speaker, theologian. She's a a regular co-host of the Holy Post podcast, and she's doing her PhD at Duke University. She's the author of The Ballot and the Bible, how scripture has been used and abused in American politics. And I also talked to my fellow Australian, uh, Con Campbell. He's a New Testament scholar, author, musician. He's the Professor of New Testament and Director of Research at the Sydney College of Divinity and he's the author of Jesus versus Evangelicals, a biblical critique of a wayward movement. Uh, so they're the three guests I have, and uh, we're going to talk about a number of things. First of all, I'm going to let them talk about their own individual books, which is you know fantastic. They've, they've all got some great things to say, and you'll really benefit from what they do say. But in addition to that, I also asked them, what advice would you give to Christians right now, uh, particularly those in the American context? And and let me say, look, this is not American bashing. We're not out there, you know, just saying that American evangelicals are the worst of the worst. That is definitely not what the discussion takes. And in fact, uh, I was going to name this conversation Christianian politics, but the fact of the matter is everyone involved, you know, myself, Con, Caitlin, Patrick, we're all products of the broad... Uh, evangelical network, you know, in its its global sphere, and we're all very much plugged in to American evangelicalism in various ways. And what we want to explore is the interface between Christianity, particularly evangelical Christianity, uh, the politics, Bible, and faith in Jesus. And I think it leads to a fun conversation. And and this is the first of a two-part going to be a second episode that i'll put out in another week or so where we continue the conversation getting into some more uh gritty issues about you know christian nationalism and liberal democracy and the like but that's still to come for now i think you're really going to like this uh this chat with these three uh, amazing christian thinkers who are talking about jesus the bible faith politics in america and in the world today so sit back and listen to this really cool interview with these great scholars on a tantalizing topic. Go Well, welcome everyone to this um, GOP primary season where we're all thinking about Jesus, the Bible and politics. Uh, it's great to have you uh, all here. It's, it's, it's a great chat. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of interest in Jesus, evangelical and politics. Um, But I've got to ask, why would nice people like you want to get into a topic like this? So, I mean, Caitlin, what made you want to write a book on, you know, the Bible and the ballot box?
1: You know, I've kind of been interested in faith and politics conversations since I was in college. I went to Liberty University, which, if anyone knows anything about that, has been really involved in national politics. And I was there during the 2016 election lead up. And so national media were on campus and conversations in my classes were happening. Um, But this book in particular, I have done a lot of work over the last few years with churches and Christian colleges and campus ministries, Talking about faith and politics. And so many of the questions that I've gotten have sur- surrounded really questions of the biblical interpretation. People will come up afterwards with, here's a verse, you know, tell me how that squares with what you've said or help me interpret this better. And they've really talked about difficult relationships and conversations in their churches and in their families. I can't have Thanksgiving dinner with my great Aunt Margaret because we just will fight it out. Or my church is really divided and I don't know how to have good conversations. And so I wanted to write something that really turned people back to scripture. I really care about my political life and our political lives being shaped by the authority of scripture. But I wanted to give us tangible examples to work through our questions of interpretation together, not just abstract hermeneutical rules, but in the heat of the moment, what are we actually doing with scripture? And I wanted to give historical examples because I thought if we come right in and say, let's talk about Black Lives Matter in Romans 13, <laughs> temperatures are raised, the you know hackles come up, like we are gonna have a real fight I wanted us to instead go to historical examples that still for Americans felt close to us. It matters to us, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, those feel related to us, but hopefully with enough distance that we could look at how our brothers and sisters in the past and the faith have interpreted scripture and judge with some distance. Was that faithful? Was that not? And how those judgments go out could help us think better about our conversations about scripture today. I want us to be in Bible study conversations, in conversations in church after a sermon, talking about scripture and the pressing moral concerns in our communities around us. But I want us to have those conversations more faithfully and with some more charity for one another and some more thoughtfulness about what scripture is and means for us. And so I hoped going to historical examples would help us do that.
0: Okay. And what are, what's the main historical examples you use, Caitlin?
1: So I kind of give a smattering throughout American history. Um, an early one that kind of started my thinking about writing this book was Like I said, I thought, okay, let's talk about Romans 13 and Black Lives Matter or COVID restrictions. And I thought, what's a good example from history that doesn't feel so heated? So I went to loyalist sermons during the Revolutionary War that used Romans 13 against the Revolution and wanted to both kind of provoke us a little bit to say, well, if we want to throw Romans 13 around when it comes to things we don't like politically now... Does our interpretation does our use of it hold up against you know this example that we see loyalist priests using it and we might really dislike their use of it or we might have questions about it Um, and then i give some examples throughout i do i have a chapter on interpretations of revelation during the cold war era and some of the dispensationalist concerns and fears the left behind books things like that um and then some more contemporary examples the very end uh, follows with jerry falwell jr who was the president of liberty when i was a student there went to Jesus's words given to Caesar what is Caesar's to often defend his really enthusiastic support of Trump. And so by the end, I'm kind of saying, well, this is a lot closer to us. This might get a little heated, but hopefully I've built up enough kind of work throughout the rest of the chapters that by the time we get to Trump, we have some common ground and we can kind of look at it with a little less of a high temperature.
0: Okay. Sounds very interesting. Excellent. And uh, that book's going to be out shortly. Uh, Great, Caitlin. Fantastic. Uh, Patrick, I'll move to you. Um, you've got a book on, as, as well on, uh, on Jesus and politics, the, the political gospel. Uh, Patrick, what made you write this book? I mean, yeah, you, 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 me- you're a New Testament man from, <laughs> yeah. a, from a distinguished line of New Testament scholars. That's um, right. What made you pivot towards the Bible and politics?
2: Yeah, I typically write more boring books. Um, you and I maybe both do on like Acts or Matthew or something <laughs> like that. Not so topical. Um, but, you know, I, really this book was birthed from two different things. Number one, I was working on a commentary on Acts and just paying attention how Paul was interacting with the political authorities of his day. And then I was watching kind of in awe um 2016 to 2020 just how American Christians were engaging with politics and so both of those things came together in my mind and I thought I think we need to do more work on political discipleship and my big focus uh, actually unlike Caitlin which I think maybe our books would be complementary in this way is to really go back to the scriptures and not so much historical examples but go back to the scriptures and just say I think the Bible has a lot more to say in terms of our political engagement. And, uh, the angle that I took is I basically walked through the new Testament, Jesus, Paul, the early church, and then revelation, the future. Um, and I look at Greco Roman backgrounds, So I was really reading a lot about Greco Roman backgrounds and how it interacted with the new Testament. Um, often we only look at the Jewish backgrounds when we read the scriptures. Um, but the Greco-Roman world was really what Jews lived in at the time. And so um, really trying to break down that division between religious and political. Uh, we, we have those terms in our, our modern day um, thought and our modern day life, but um, really when you come to the scriptures, those, those terms and those categories just don't work as we examine Jesus, as we examine Paul. And so I really wanted to walk through the scriptures and just show people that, you know, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2 are not the only texts that speak to politics and how we engage with political discipleship. There's a lot more. Um, Often they're found, though, in narratives um, with how certain individuals are engaging with governing authorities. And so we quickly go to commands, but um, we have a lot more of our Bible to speak to how we engage in politics. So really my hope was that this would be a a book of political discipleship, helping the, the church, especially the American church, think through what does the Bible say about politics and how we engage in them. Um, I didn't grow up studying political theory. I'm not a political um, scientist. I I do New Testament studies. And so I really brought uh, my specialty to bear upon this conversation, and I was hoping that I could contribute something unique in that realm.
0: Well, thanks, Patrick. Uh, Now, obviously, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are the go-to texts. What's the one text... That, that maybe the one narrative that speaks to um, creating a political theology uh, that most people don't know about, but you wish they did? Is there one particular text, you know, you wish people did know about that would help them think about politics, but it's not one of the ones they immediately go to?
2: Yeah, I mean, two texts come to mind. I know you said one, but um, one of the things I focus on in my book is kind of the paradox of submission and subversion in the scriptures, that it seems like both Jesus... In the early church subverted the governing authorities, but at the same time submitted to them and, and how those two things go together. I'm sure we'll talk about that more. Um, but in Acts 16, Acts 21 and 22, there's two texts. I could go to a lot of different texts, but those two texts are really interesting because Paul is causing kind of a political uproar, both in Philippi and in Jerusalem. And it's not just a religious uproar. I would argue it's a political uproar. But at the same time, he claims that he's a Roman citizen and he kind of uses his Roman citizenship to get out of a sticky situation. And so th- there, a lot of people just don't know really what to do with those texts in terms of, like, what is Paul doing? Um, he, and and then, then he appeals to Caesar in Acts 25, 24, 25. Uh, I think we should conclude from these texts that Paul is willing to stand before Caesar with his gospel message. And that Caesar um, will not see it necessarily as a threat. Uh, he claims that he's innocent. So he's. I, I think that, that pairing of he's causing um, uproar, he's causing mobs to occur, uh, people are accusing him of things, but at the same time, he's very convinced that he's innocent before the political authorities. It, it's that, really that paradox hmm. that I think is an imitation of Jesus. Jesus is brought before Roman governors, and they actually see him as innocent he's still crucified on a Roman cross. And so I really wanted to bring that the, those paradoxes together and say, how does that inform how we engage in politics today?
0: Terrific. Uh, well, Con, over to you. Now, um, Con, out of all the books, you're the one I like the least because you basically wrote the book I always wanted to write. I wanted right. to write basically, it literally chapter by chapter, you'd pick the stuff I was going to do. Uh, and I did pitch it to a publisher, and the publisher said to me, Mike, you've got to understand... Americans don't like foreigners telling them how wrong they are. <laughs> you might find this hard to believe, Mike, but we don't like foreigners telling us that we're wrong or stupid. But I don't know. For yeah. some reason, you found a publisher who would allow and it's, it's not just you saying that they're all Americans are all wrong and stupid. That's 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 that that that's not what the book yeah. is about. But, Con, what made what made you write this book, Jesus versus the Evangelicals? Just happen to have a copy here. Um. Uh, Well, I did live in the
3: the US for five and a half years, and I was there when uh, Donald Trump was elected uh, to be president. And um, I'll tell you a little little anecdote um, that really got me moving in this direction, at least the political thing, because the book doesn't only address uh, political engagement, addresses a range of issues within evangelicalism, but... um, Within the first month or two of living in the states, I was invited to, uh, you know, a small group Bible study for some men. Um, and you know, a guy at my church was going there, and and uh, he invited me along. And I thought, okay, so what do you expect when you go to a, a Bible study group? You know, I thought, we'd, well, we'll op- we'll open the scriptures, we'll read a passage, we'll talk about it. You know, maybe you know, pray, have a cup of coffee, that sort of thing. We get to know each other. That's what I was expecting. Um, And what happened just totally blew my mind. So basically there were about, I don't know, a dozen guys there. And the whole thing was about an hour and a half monologue from the leader of the group who just talked about um, how what desperate need we all have to make sure that our politicians get elected into the right positions. Um, and that this was like a vitally urgent issue for the sake of, you know, Jesus in America. And I was just like, is this a, what planet am I on? Like, is this a Bible study? You know, I realized coming from Australia, uh, we're arguably so politically unengaged that you could critique us for not caring about anything. And that that would probably be a fair criticism. Um, And, you know, when you're a foreigner going into a different, culture lots of things will will jar and lots of things will resonate and that's fine you, you sort of expect that um but for most of my time in the u.s um the the political fervor and 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 not just it's not political engagement per se um, that i'm critical of it's it's in particular it's partisanship so this this idea that there's a part if you're a christian there's one party that represents you and And this is the party you must vote for in order to either establish America as a Christian nation or to retain the Christian character of America. Um, And I know that's an oversimplification. Lots of American Christians would disagree with that analysis. But time and time again, that's how it felt to me, uh, that that's what I was hearing from people. Um, And so in the book, I want to sort of disentangle um, this view that there is there is one party for a Christian to vote to vote for, which assumes a whole bunch of Christian priorities, but um, but actually ignores or marginalizes other priorities that we find in the Bible and in, including in the teaching of Jesus, um, that have become associated with the other party. Um, and if you think that way, um, then you're a liberal or you don't really believe the Bible or you've given up on Jesus. Um, and I'm just like. That's crazy. It's crazy talk. So, um, you know, um, there are a few things that uh, sort of address. So it's partly uh, biblical analysis, like uh, Patrick's work, partly cultural analysis, and you know, partly Australian sticking his nose in where it doesn't belong.
0: Well, I mean, but can I ask? What, I mean, coming from outside America, uh, you know, but in a in a how does that shape your perspective? Because you're coming from an out, you're coming from what I would say a sympathetic outsider coming in, mm. because we're mm. we're a part of the same Anglo-Sphere uh, culture, sort of you know the sort of you know post-British Empire English culture, um, you know broadly evangelical. So you've got a sympathetic perspective at one level coming on in, mm. which is why I guess you were appointed to a position besides being you know a great teacher that you are. So, I mean, how does the um, external perspective um, bring added value to what you mm. contribute? Because, I mean, because, you know, cr- critiques of evangelicals, you know, um, are relatively common. So what does your unique Australian perspective bring? Well,
3: I think um, the main thing is we we sort of need other people to show us our blind spots um, because, by definition, we can't see them ourselves. And... Uh, Often it takes someone from outside our own context and culture to identify those blind spots. And in Australia, we have blind spots too. But again, by definition, I need someone else to point them out to me. So, I think the American church uh, will quite happily point out other cultures' blind spots, like say uh, ancestral worship among the within the church in Africa and countries, for example. Uh, you'd say that that's incompatible with the gospel. That's not you know, there's a corruption of Christianity going on there. Um, And, but for many African Christians, it seems natural and normal and, and, and it perhaps is a, is a blind spot that that needs to be pointed out. But by the same token, our African brothers and sisters are very good at pointing out that Western Christians are very materialistic and obsessed with wealth and comfort. And we might say, well, that's not fair. I, you know, I don't drive a, I don't drive a Porsche, Um, you know, but, Actually, from their perspective, uh, it seems uh, quite appropriate to call us out on that. So, you know, I think um, listening carefully to outsiders who care, not just who want to throw stones, but, but who care and who do share some fundamental uh, principles, especially related to our worldview, um, is important. And I'd like to think that I would be receptive to similar criticisms if anyone dares to level
0: them toward me. I'm sure there are many who would dare, Con. I'm sure there were many who would dare. Yeah, there there um, are. Let, let me ask you all just one, one quick quick question individually. Um, what is the one thing you wish Christians in America knew about, I don't know, Bible theology, culture, and politics? I mean, let, let me go first. For me, it was the ability to differentiate between what is Christian and what is cultural. I would say that is the number one thing I would like. To teach people because these things get um get conflated too much but caitlin what's the number one thing you'd want to treat uh, teach or tell your fellow um country and women uh about bible politics theology and religion
1: i think the number one thing and the thing that i didn't realize was such a consistent theme in this book that i just wrote until my advisor pointed it out to me is that we have this incredible tradition of really faithful use of scripture for political ends in America in the civil rights movement. We have a long history of the black church in this country using scripture faithfully, holding to it as a high authority and having really incredible political change as a result of it and not selling their souls in the process, really using scripture to both ask internal questions about spiritual formation and the sinfulness that can infect all political movements. And then also saying God is the same God who's liberated in the past and will liberate in the future. And that gives us the freedom to work for justice without sacrificing what shouldn't be sacrificed because we know that ultimately redemption comes from God. I mean, a remarkably faithful Orthodox tradition of using scripture to shape their political ends. And I fully understand why right now people are looking at our history and going, there is so much to lament. And there 100% is. But I fear that a lot of Christians my age, especially today, you know, younger millennials, Gen Zers are going, there is nothing that we can salvage in this tradition. There's nothing in evangelicalism we can salvage. There's nothing even in using scripture in politics that we should return to. It's so bad. It's only been misused. We need to just stop doing it. Stop making any reference to God or to scripture in our political life. And what I would want to say to them is I understand why you feel that way. And also there is a tradition, even in your own country, outside of the one that you feel has really failed. And it's been this really faithful tradition that we should turn to and learn from. Yeah,
0: that's, that's, that's a very, very good point, a recovery <coughs> of a responsible use of the Bible politically. Yeah. Patrick, what about yourself? Um, if you're doing a keynote at ETS, and we all pray that one day you will, um, <laughs> you want to talk about the Bible, Jesus, and politics or the political gospel, what's, what are you going for?
2: Yeah, I think most people would assume in my book, I'm going to urge people to not be as political. But my big point would be, we need to be way more political, but way more political in the true sense. So in my book, I argue Christianity is political, the gospel is political. It not only has political implications, it's a politic itself. So my argument in the book is actually not that we need to get Christians out of politics, but that the average Christian is not nearly political enough. But I'm using political in the historic sense of the word in terms of how do we um, associate and organize ourselves and, and, and who has the right to have authority over our lives. And, and really my book is just pointing out as Christians, we believe Jesus is not just the Lord of my life, but the King of Kings. And so we need to be way more political. And in the book, I, um, You know, I I give kind of two options. Uh, The average Christian either makes their faith private so that their faith has nothing to say about their um, political life in the secular way, or we make it partisan, as Khan has talked about. And I just say that the the other way is to really press into the political nature of our faith, which I think orders our allegiances ultimately. And so, I mean, uh, the big part of this conversation that I think augustine really was getting at in the city of god is it's not wrong to have multiple loves it's not wrong to love different things it's how do you order those those loves and so um in terms of political discipleship i I do you know that i mentioned the 2016 the trump years to COVID years it just became very evident that um we had more work to do in terms of where our true loyalty lies. And so if you make people truly political in the Christian sense, then I, I'm not saying people can't actually be partisan, but it can't be your identity. You can use partisanship as a tool. I think in America um, often you do have to pick who you're gonna vote for or what party you're gonna be a part of. To in, you know, in certain states you have to do that to engage even in voting um not every state but is so so it's not wrong to say maybe i might align more with this political party the problem is when that becomes your identity when that begins to trump um and i and i try not to use that ironically but when that begins to trump your um christian identity that that's when it becomes problematic um and so yeah i I talked to a lot of people who were like are you saying like we can't be in government we can't advocate for certain things. And, and no, that's not what I'm getting at. I, I'm, I'm very thankful for those who serve and as governing authorities that are Christians, that are trying to do good, um, no matter what party that is. But we should all be critical of whatever um, party we decide if, if we're going to align with one. We should recognize that that's not our true home.
0: Okay, good. So we need to rightly order our loves and we need to be um, flexibly partisan rather than woodenly partisan in how we apply our convictions in politics. Good way to put it. Yeah. Now, for you, Con. Let's assume that you go to um, go through LAX. Uh, the TSA people decide not to taser you, uh, and instead they let you through, and you're off to speak somewhere at a um, at a, a political uh, summit of some kind. Uh, what's your message to the to our, our American brothers and sisters going to be, Con? Well, I
3: think what I would say resonates pretty well with what uh, Caitlin Pat, Patrick have said, but I would summarise it as. Um, Uh, we should be prophetic rather than partisan so I take what Patrick said about you know we do have to make choices about partisan so on but but I think uh, in relation to the civil rights movement I think the success of the civil rights movement was was actually to engage with politicians but um, sort of a a little bit from a distance you know to, to not be um Married to one particular party or or any particular politicians, but actually to be able to have a stance where you can critique uh, things that you believe are wrong or immoral or unjust, uh, wherever in whichever party they're found, and uh, I think it's important for us to be able to to have the integrity to to make those critiques wherever you see um, injustice. Uh, and but the problem with, uh, diehard sort of partisanship is that you, you're sort of, you're, you're kind of, well, I assume just went weird. Uh you're sort of, you're, you're, comp- you're compromised the close uh, up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, make, makes that. it more yeah. interesting
2: with a moving camera, you know, <laughs> this is great.
3: Uh, yeah. Uh, gonna got a mind of its own. Um, anyway, I think, I think that's, that's made the point that that if you're somewhat independent politically you're you're actually able to speak truth in it into every situation rather than being compromised by a, one particular allegiance okay
0: terrific well i, I just want you to know what i would do would be probably closer to caitlin i would go back through those loyalist sermons printed in the uh new york in the 1770s and my message would be bring back the king okay everything <laughs> after that was a mistake you misread romans 13 peeps George the Third was not a tyrant. Bring back the king. That'd be my message. And uh, make America
3: Great Britain again.
0: Yeah, make America. <laughs> yes. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, it probably won't go down anytime soon. Okay. Well, it's been great talking to you people. This has been a lot of fun. It's been good uh, learning about your respective books. Uh, we're going to come back uh, again at, at another point to continue this conversation. But I want to thank everyone: Caitlin, Con, Patrick. Thanks for chatting with me about Jesus, Evangelicals, and politics.
3: Thanks, Mike.